Hello. Thank you for coming to the Sylvan Horn today. It's a little bit of a slow day around here, but we always love when anyone drops by. I hope you enjoy the conversation today between Nilo and Justin. And maybe we'll eavesdrop a little bit on Pursuit and Lindia, see what they've been up to. Enjoy your food. I'm Nilo. And I'm Justin. And welcome again to the Sylvan Horn. Not a lot happening in the news this week, but I would like everyone to know that in a pack of Forgotten Realms magic cards this week, I did finally pull a Dritz. I'm excited about that. I don't know about you, Nilo. Oh, I'm, well, I'm less excited in the fact that I didn't pull it, but I'm rather jealous. So I guess, yes, I'm very excited for you. And the next thing I need is a Tiamat because I've been thinking about this and my idea right now is to put kind of a bad guy dungeon deck together and a good guy deck together. And I've got some ideas. So it's going to be kind of a campaign in two decks to play against each other. So what you're saying is you want my Tiamat. I do want your Tiamat, and I'll trade you some things for it, but not my Dritz. <laughs> but a few other things that we want to talk about in the news this week. Exandria Unlimited has finished its run, and so there are a lot of people talking about what they liked and what they didn't like about that. And we'll be talking about that some as we get into min-maxing versus story-focused characters, but we want to do a little bit of talking about that today. And a little bit, some, some new things coming out from WizKids. And a new partnership that is kind of mighty strange for D&D. So I hope you'll enjoy just talking about these things with us before we start to dive in with some more DM tips. So what do you, did you think about Exandria Unlimited? So Exandria Unlimited, admittingly, just for everyone uh, playing at home, I have not finished it. So I'm a little bit limited on what I can speak about. But like I have tried to catch up to the controversies. And a lot of it seems to be focused on the both the dm and the dming style as well as opal the opal controversy um so with that one i think it's really interesting do you are you aware of that uh, the controversy surrounding her the flaws of the character and uh, yes uh, whatnot? been looking at that and in kind of thinking about it as is because like you i haven't quite finished everything yet i, I went ahead and read through the recaps of the episode. So I kind of know where everything's going, but I haven't listened to it all yet. But it's to me, it was it's kind of an odd controversy, partially because of just the way that I look at Critical Role itself as a brand. It's not about min-max characters. It's not about care. It's always been about characters that have some flaws. Well, you're right. I mean, if you, I feel like that was the reason that I mean, both campaigns have been fantastic, but like this last campaign was really, really interesting. I mean, like look at like Caleb Whittlegast. I mean, not they had these kind of baked in flaws to their characters that they started with, and you learn more about them through story than their like min maxed uh, tactical abilities. In fact, half the time, most of the combats they were messing up and then just trying to fix it through other mess ups. Uh, you know, one reference, if, you know, hopefully there's no spoilers here, but the one time I think it was like Caleb who did a, uh, like, magnify gravity or a gravity-type spell and then kind of just slaughtered two guards who got squished up into, like, a little meatball floating in the sky, and everyone was traumatized. Right. That, that was less tactic, more of a, he did a thing he thought was cool, just learned it, and ended up ending two lives while they were trying to stealth into a place. 
It was fascinating. And that's what made that conflict and, you know, that drama really interesting. So it's very weird for people now to pick on a new player into the whole series, um, you know, playing Opal as, oh, she's flawed. She wasn't like built for this. I think she was built exactly for this. Look at all the characters playing. Exactly. And I think, you know, one of the, some of the things I read said, you know, were the suboptimal choices more player-based or character-based? And I can get that to an extent, but at the same time, I don't know how you separate those two things completely. It's really a ridiculous thought to say that, and we'll, again, we're going to get into this more as we really dive into this topic, but it's not wrong to choose something that's suboptimal at times if it's more, even if it is just because it's more interesting for you as a player. And I think that's where some of this gets in is we've got to remember when we're watching these actual plays that as much as it is entertainment for us, it is also just a group of people getting to play, getting together to play D&D and have a good time with it. Yeah, and it's it's really... I guess unfair in a lot of ways to have these high expectations, specifically on someone who's new to D&D and new to that table. And I feel like a lot of the criticism has been a little bit unnecessary. Everyone's like coming at her like she's playing wrong. And I'm like, she played fine. Everything she did made sense. I could understand it. It was entertaining and it looked like she was having fun with it. I feel like the character wasn't a big problem, or at least not as big a problem as they're making her out to be, especially not in the game they ended up playing, which I've only seen uh, three to four episodes. But so far, she's the exact type of character I would enjoy watching in this situation versus a tactical hero that isn't very built out in a flawed versus like, you know, weaknesses and strengths and all that. So for sure. And I think that's where we get into the other controversy which is the DM style. And ultimately, I think the controversy weighs down more than anything else in that she is different than Matt Mercer. Oh, yeah. I feel like there was a couple, a couple of little, like talking points when it came to all the wonderful discussions I spent way too much time reading. And all of them came down to her, her storytelling ability how much meandering she was allowing or perhaps not mitigating against, which is different than, you know, Matthew Mercer style, or at least that was the argument, though I would fight back. A lot of meandering happened in Matthew Mercer's campaigns, both of them. There's thousands of examples where they're like in a store for way too long. It was like half the episode. This was no different. And then the other half, too, was like a matter of like, the storytelling ability was a little lackluster, so you never really knew what the point was. But I feel like D&D kind of gets that way sometimes, and that's like a downtime period. But ultimately, I don't think she was a bad DM. In fact, I have to, in a biased way, perhaps say she was fantastic because she mirrors my own style in a lot of ways. And I think I'm a decent DM, so I do feel like she handled it very well, given everything. The other side of it was she wasn't honoring the roles strictly she was kind of bending and allowing some like you know leeways here and there and not being as heavy-handed as she should have been when someone rolled low which i would push back like she had new players that she was trying to keep in the game have fun give them something to work with and sometimes of low role shouldn't be the reason that they're now unable to enjoy an experience 
But equally so, I do understand it. And there were times that rolling a one or a two netted nothing when there should have been a consequence. So I guess it goes back and forth. But I don't think she did bad. I loved her style. Yeah, I think her style is great. I've really enjoyed watching it. It's it's very different than a lot of other people. Like I said, it is kind of similar to the way you DM. And the critiques to me, most of them, other than like you said, there were some times when there were no consequences for bad roles. And it was almost felt like she had a story in mind and that role didn't fit. So I'm just going to kind of forget that it happened. Mm-hmm. And that I think you can make a critique and there might even be a critique there of too heavy handed in handing out inspiration and these kind of things. But again, new players in a new world and you're wanting to keep things rolling and keep things happening. And I just thought that the humor that she brings to the table and her understanding of this world, seeing it through a different DM's eyes was really fascinating. It would be like somebody coming in and DMing in the world that we're playing in every week. If you took a week off and somebody else jumped into that and seeing how do they see the world differently than you do, but we're still playing in that same realm. And I think that's valid and interesting. And there's been some talk about that they may do another season of Exandria Unlimited. There were definitely at the end some places where there were cliffhangers and there's some unanswered questions. And with all of the merchandising and everything they did, I can't think that they did that all for eight episodes. Oh, right. I mean, I feel like the first couple episodes was this like pilot, test it out, see the the response. But I think once they got to about like three or four, you really start to see them really diving in, ramping up. And so I, I definitely think season two was always a possibility and they just needed to ensure like the numbers were there, that the interest was there and then they went full on. And that might even be the, you know, the reason that uh, they're pushing back the next campaign a little bit is to try to figure out a better way to tell both these stories in a way that, you know, you know, value, values everyone's times, but also that they're in sync because like, I don't know where campaign three is going to be, but they seem attached enough to Taldoray, the Wild Mount, that I, I feel like at some level they still have to keep some details in line, if, if that makes any sense. Right. And, and I so, think that yeah. what you may end up seeing is with something like this, if you can put together like they did, this wasn't live every week. This was put together ahead of time. And they may do instead of going full bore all throughout a campaign, take a few weeks off and put something like this out, whether it is another season of Exandria Unlimited or something like that. And that allows those actors to have a little bit of break when they've become very much in demand, even more than they already were because of their presence on Critical Role. And there's no telling what could come from all of that. And, you know, they've got the cartoon coming out at some point soon. I think that's probably the surprise announcement that they're talking about. They don't know when exactly they're going to make it um, because those Kickstarter rewards have started coming out to people and things like that. So I'm excited to see what they do. I enjoyed it. I, you know, I've even enjoyed some of the other one shots and things that they've done at times because they just know how to tell a story well. They know how to come together and do that. And I think they'll continue to do that. And so I'm excited about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I do feel like in a lot of ways for like, especially D&D, like fifth edition, 
they've really been able to take that mantle and get it out to the masses in a way that D&D never kind of could by itself. They're one of the most successful D&D streams or, like, you know, live plays really in history in a lot of ways. Uh, not to say that as like a canon stat, maybe I'm wrong, but I do know Critical Role has become a more common name on like most people I know's mouth. Like most people know the voice actors, follow the careers and end up knowing Critical Role and therefore D&D. It's just become like a multifaceted approach to get more people into D&D. So I do feel like their ability to help drive home why 5e was such a powerhouse and it's like story driven focus has become very influential. So I love the way they t- tell their stories. And like you've seen with my campaign, it's exactly how I like to tell my stories. So I've been all for it. I've loved everything they've done. So I can't wait for what comes next. And I still kind of siding with Critical Role and the Critical Role staff when it comes to these controversies. I don't think they did much wrong. Yeah, there's critiques, but no DM escapes critiques. Trust me. And I think you're absolutely right about their influence you're not going into Barnes and Noble and Hot Topic and seeing T-shirts and stickers and books um, from any other right. <laughs> live stream game. I mean, that's how they are. They've got this big of a following. And that also brings up why there's this controversy there, because there are so many people within that fandom. And that's why I've gotten to where... I quit watching it live because I can't stand to watch that chat stream because there's so much negativity in there all the time. And so I'm watching it later on YouTube or I'm listening to the podcast just because of how negative that fandom can be at times. Yeah, well, and I've I've come to just have this weird love-hate relationship with Twitch in general. Like Anything that gets big and popular, chat always finds a way to just make it dirty and, and bad and like negative and toxic. So right. I'm the same way. If I can just watch it on my own time through a, I hit play on a YouTube video and I don't have to read anything, I'm happy. Um, just because that's not always the right headspace you want to experience when you're just trying to engage in a fantasy world. Um, so yeah, no, I totally agree. I'm right there with you. And talking about getting D&D out to the masses, probably one of the strangest combinations of products that I've ever seen is starting to roll out on shelves. And that is the promotion with D and D and nerds candy. It's honestly just nuts to me. When I heard they were doing it, I thought it was crazy. When I saw it on the shelves at the grocery store, I'm like, this is just weird. I Definitely agree. It's incredibly weird. Did not see that coming after all the recent things we've we've had announced by them. However, I'm very jealous that you've actually had them because nowhere around me, for whatever reason, has them. And now I'm starting to realize we should have started this podcast sooner because if we wanted free stuff at any given point, that would have been the thing I would have requested. Like, get us some boxes of like, D&D nerds and I will die a happy child. Absolutely. Yeah. If anybody wants to send us free D&D nerds, if anybody wants to send us some more of these Forgotten Realm magic cards, whatever you want to send, we will take and we will talk about. And, you know, but it's so cool. They you buy some nerds, you go online with your proof of purchase and they've got seven different adventures that you can get. The first six are all one-on-one adventures kind of based on a particular color nerd and what class they would be. And then you bring them all together for a seventh level adventure. And I'm just excited to see what these things are. 
I have a feeling that they're going to be some of the craziest stuff that we've ever seen official adventure wise. Um, do we have any any information on like on what the individual nerd color like one shots are? Like any info about those little? The mini- only one that I've seen so far, there was a video out when I went on to see if I could get the adventures down. It told me that you can't get those till September first. There was a video on the website of the yellow nerd being a cleric. And that makes sense. Yellow radiant, you know. Yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I, I had a moment at first, like, why does that make sense? But then I realized my brain just didn't have a bridge between candy and clerics. So right. maybe that's kind of where it fell apart. But all the same, I'm really excited to see that because that's ultimately, if you strip all that out of it, just six individual one shots you can run. Exactly. So to me, that's already like, great, more content. I need more content always. I'm always up for more content. But I, you know, just the funniest thing that we're we're now in a place where D&D is going to be in every grocery store, in every convenience store, and every drugstore that sells nerds candy. They are going to have this big D&D section, no matter what kind of nerds are there, because it's going to be the little regular boxes, the big movie boxes, the nerd gummy clusters, like all of their stuff is going to be D&D branded throughout the fall. I, I mean, I can always say I've only waited 20 years, 20 <laughs> years to hear anyone even say that because the possibilities and the, there's some part of me that's always wanted more D&D things in my day-to-day life especially in my produce sections mm. and so we've also got some new miniatures coming out from WizKids what do you think about those Neela? I believe they were going to release a Dritzed miniature specifically that was like one of the big ones that they were yes. Um and so I don't know about the rest of them but like from what I saw I love the idea of it because they're kind of going further than just here's a miniature that we printed off and sent you. They're completely customizable down to like arms, legs, heads, and even weapons, right? Yes. And to the point where you can choose different facial expressions, you can choose the way that they're standing, you can put different weapons in their hands. And they've got a huge number of them going anything from a dwarf fighter to a mind flayer to a tiefling rogue dragonborn paladin. So there's going to be a lot of monsters, a lot of different PC type characters that you can build. And they're a little bit more expensive than your regular one. The standard size miniature is going to be $14.99 and the larger ones are going to go anywhere from $24.99 to $9.99 compared to your, five dollars to 99 dollars with the ones that are already out there but it's really interesting product i'm excited to just kind of see what it is and they're calling these dungeons and dragons frameworks everything's going to come you know in the sprue pack you're going to have to like take it apart and glue it together and then paint it yourself and i'm excited about that i don't know how much of that i would do but if there was a particular character or a particular class and race that i wanted to play i would definitely consider picking that up and building it myself well i guess that's like the perk because i guess imagine if you had enough of them the idea would be it's like your own home version of hero forge Right. You have all these little pieces and you can customize how the miniature looks and then that's your character. I feel like that's actually kind of genius in a lot of ways. And I'm, now I'm really excited to get it. Um, but mainly because I want to do that with monsters. Like Hero Forge, you can't really build the, the monsters as much. At least you can play the you know playable races. But like I want a beholder that has like a Tiamat's dragon heads on it. 
like, I don't know why, but I feel like the second you put that on any map and in any game, you're going to have a couple players who are probably going to shit the bed pretty quick. So that's exciting. Yeah. I mean, there's some interesting ideas. I think you even how you could take some of these things and mix and match them since they're coming in pieces, how you could put some different things together that maybe came from different packs. Yeah. There's some different, it's cool. Like imagine your character's getting corrupt and suddenly like you have some type of like a, a clawed hand where mm-hmm. beforehand you were just like an elf. So you just pull off their arm and put on an actual clawed hand. That'd be well, That actually very similar happened to the first character that I played. I was playing an ASMR monk who lost his leg in a genie wish gone wrong. And then we defeated an enemy who had a claw a crab claw for an arm and that became my character's leg we went to some monks that were able to work and and put that on and so then i had a crab claw leg for a while and an interesting mechanic (laughs) to deal with only in in dnd do you hear a story like that you essentially defeated or fought and defeated mr Krabs, and then you went to a monastery to get it put onto your foot right Only in D&D. And that's really what we're getting into as we get into the rest of our discussion today is some of these only in D&D when it comes to how your characters are built and what you can do with them. So join us as we begin to talk about the differences and the pros and cons of min-maxing versus a story-based character. So I'm going to start off with kind of our more DMing and playing discussion this session on the topic of min-maxing versus story-driven characters. Not necessarily a versus, but the idea and concept behind how you make your characters, whether it's the idea of min and maxing to get your tactical advantage and get the most playability on the battlefield out of your character and that you're benefiting everyone, but also able to really be a powerhouse or you're building a character, not necessarily mediocre, but like a pretty average build, but you have a story beat that is more about something they're trying to overcome on a personal level that then helps them engage or get further away from the main story based on triumphs and failures. So the idea of building flaws into the character to make them a better story piece. And I lean towards a story driven 100%. Because I did the min-maxing for a long time and I always kind of ultimately felt like I wanted something more. And then story-driven is where I ended up finding like it wasn't that I wanted more. It was just that I wanted a heavy story presence dripping everywhere. Um, so for me, it's not as fun to do min-maxing. But I know that's not everyone's takeaway. And I'm the same way. I definitely lean more towards a story-based character. and But I've min-maxed as well. Even if you look at my two most recent characters that I've played, Lindir's ended up being a very much a min-max character in the end, whereas Iltiel is very much a story-based character where I haven't wanted to make him completely inept in a combat situation, but even playing a wizard as I've taken spells, I've taken spells that I thought as a character he would take, and some of that thought has come into now he realizes he's in this situation where he has to do this. But at other times, I've been taking things to make myself have to figure out how to use it instead of thinking ahead of time, this is what I'm going to do with this. I'm going to take this spell. 
And I think that alone, like, especially for like, I build a world that is more accessible and leans towards story-driven characters. So when people make their characters with that in mind, you'll have a lot easier time in the world and you won't be as bored because I'm not throwing monsters at you 24-7. It's more of the story-driven things that will get us to encounters and those encounters will have a story-driven reason. And then, yeah, your characters, especially with our campaign, where a little preface for everyone who doesn't know, that campaign of Descent to Avernus is the module, but it's very homebrewed in my own way. And everyone started as just a like a commoner or a peasant or someone just doing a job in the city or a background that was more mundane, like bookstore owner or, you know, a carpenter. And then they've come into a pretty crap situation where people kind of don't have anyone to turn to. And so you're kind of taking up the mantle yourself. So a bookstore owner now has to figure out how alarm and like unseen servant can help when you have to go fight cultists. That's not easy, but that's kind of part of the charm of the story is the coming of heroism and failing sometimes and doing better than you expected or watching a mortician pull out some crazy chain move. And you're like, they teach you that in mortician school? Whoa, like that amazing moment. And so that's kind of what our campaign's all about. And I, the direction I'm taking that train. But like if we had a min maxing, it would be a lot harder to entertain them or at least play to their style in our campaign so that's and I, was, I said that at the game session zero like this is not about min maxing but i've done the min maxing campaigns before and it was very tactic heavy and it was more like warring nations and you know, like you're stuck in the middle of a giant feud that has you know a thousand soldiers battling on a war field and you're caught in this little area get ready to fight these monsters and you know play to your strengths and you know annihilate them and i've built my monsters and encounters kind of to suit where your min-maxing was so that it was balanced and you're not just having an easy time because it's a lot harder on a DM when you have a min-maxing party to then min-max your encounters against you. Um, but that being the case, like, yeah, I, well, nowadays, at least after 15 years of DMing, I'm almost always story-driven focused. Before we go any further, let's explain to people what min-maxing is because there may be somebody listening to this that's never heard that term before. Well, do you want to start on that one? Yeah, absolutely. And you probably do it better than I can. But, you know, what we're talking about when we're talking about min-maxing is you're looking at your character and you're taking that character sheet and you're trying to make them the best at something. They're going to be the best in their particular class at fighting, at shooting an arrow, at casting certain kinds of spells. And you are making every decision that you make and building that character out from level one all the way up to make them the most powerful that they can be. That's the way that I understand it. Anything different from you, Nilo? No, that's that's pretty much how I've always understood it myself, too, as well as how I used to do it. It's the idea from start to finish with your character. You're always looking at the most optimal choices to make your character the most powerful and the best they can be, especially like from like a DPS like standpoint, from the ability to, you know, if like you're a rogue, be as sneaky, unhittable, dexterous as possible, be able to one hit any target you can while then jumping back into the shadows being able to be literally as heroic of that version of a character as can be possible. Kind of like how godly can you make them is how mm -hmm. my friend always said it. 
that's a great way to look at it too. That was kind of Lindir's whole aspect was that he wanted to become a God. And that was how I kind of built him as we kind of come in, got into a min maxing mode on that. I wanted story-wise for that to happen, but it ended up kind of happening more mechanically. And I think you can tell a story with a min max character. I don't think we don't want to say that you can't do that. Oh, by no means. Yeah. Yeah. It's just what story do you want to tell? Are you looking to tell a Michael Bay movie, just the Transformers, and everybody is as powerful as they possibly can be, and it's just about going in and taking things down and blowing stuff up, and you can tell an interesting story that way, or are you looking for something more nuanced? Are you looking for characters who are interacting with each other and truly interacting with the world, not just toppling down the buildings that are around them? And that's where we've both kind of fallen in our interest of it is characters that are going to be interacting with one another, that are going to be interacting with the NPCs, that they have a stake in not just the battles of the world, but in just the whole life of the world. And I think when you're focusing on min maxing, you're going to miss some of that opportunity. Yeah. And I, I guess like, yeah, I probably should have prefaced that as well. So good call on that one. You can have both, but that has to specifically be the mentality I kind of like the uh, agreed upon contract as you go into it that, yeah, you can make your min max character, but also make sure he has a story that hooks in and that he'll take the time to hook in because I guess like hooking in becomes the harder part with the min maxing style of if you can just kill everything, if your idea is like, I built my character to be powerful and strong and, you know, very smart in situations to be able to quickly navigate them. Then it's the very uh, hero mentality of like, why talk when I can kill you and get my answers, you know, any way I want, or, you know, why try to coax it out of you? Cause if you're dead, problem solved. And so it's where like murder hoboing and those concepts come from. And so the, I guess story driven is my way of getting around that. Like you're not inclined to murder hobo if you don't know anything and you know, you're going to have to talk to these people to get these answers. And if you try to kill them, well, you don't know how strong they are. They might be able to just slay you in one hit. So play your cards right, live within the world, act to your environments. So when it comes to that, yeah, you can definitely be both. And I will totally allow a min-maxer to play in my campaign as long as they already understand what that means and how I'm still going to try to balance everything out so they don't feel as powerful, even if their character is super balanced. But power leveling campaigns are definitely a thing. If you want a full Michael Bay movie and everyone agrees, uh, well, we're going to have some explosions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're going to have a full-on grand epic time where we're going to go to here and go to there and you have to survive this massive, you know, catalytic failure of a realm. You have to escape it and then it goes slay a beast that's destroying things. Oh, you can have a lot of fun with that. It's just scaling up. But like min-maxing sometimes is like the alternative of being able to build these perfectly suited characters and then having these counters that challenge and rival it so you're, you can experience your character in that powerful moment, those triumphs. And so I guess it's a lot harder to then bake in the investigation of the murder uh, suspect and how to find the answers of what person poisoned him in this more nuanced social encounter. And I think you just really hit it really well there in that in a min-max campaign, it is all about the character's triumphs. In a more story-based campaign, the failures are just as interesting and just as important. 
Right. And I think that to me is why I find that just a more enjoyable way to play because I'm looking and I know that if I roll a four, something just as interesting can happen because of that as if I roll a 20, because this is a more story-based campaign. It's not just about, you know, what awesome things I can do. It is what are the consequences of the bad things that happen as well. Right. And so, yeah, that's, that's very much the way I play it too, because I don't get as much out of a story about making everyone else feel like the biggest, baddest heroes they could possibly be, destroying, taking, do whatever they want. I like the ones that have to make decisions and then live with them. And those decisions sometimes will just be left to the dice roll. And it can be, oh, you got it. The very thing, the result you're looking for, you feel proud, you've never done it before, everyone's very happy for you. Or you just made a grave mistake and everyone watches that go across your face and you have to live with that regardless. And so, yeah, no, I feel like a good story is the conflict that your character faces as they go from point A to point B and how they turn out when they get to point B. Will they be the person they want to be better than they ever thought they could be? Or perhaps they turn to dark side and things kind of went south and now they're just surviving. It's and we've had that story in our campaign where one place in particular when Axios, our Leon and Monk, decides to go and do a stealth mission in the upper city but he's a big old leonin trying to get into a place he's not supposed to be trying to remain unseen and in essence when you we were thinking about it it was like oh yeah this is great he's a monk he's got good decks he'll get in there and he'll do this but you're not thinking about the larger picture and once that shows itself we were like oh that was so dumb because (laughs) but it's a story-based situation and there were interesting things that came out of both the successes and failures of that event as we have continued to move forward in the story and i think it You know, some of it comes down to, you know, even what we were talking about with the Exandria campaign in that some people are expecting a min-max character or at least an optimized somewhat character. And some people are just trying to put the most interesting character they can together. And something that I said about Ilftiel, I think, kind of speaks into that situation, the question comes down to, are the choices that are being made more about the player or more about the character, especially many of the comments that I saw about Exandria are the suboptimal choices that are being made more player-based or character-based. And so what do you think about that when it comes to, you know, building out a character, how much of it should be, what are we thinking about and what's the difference between something that's player-based and character-based? Well, like, so I didn't really say it earlier when you had said, you know, more about like the player base, the character base and building these characters. And I've always been kind of under the belief that any character you make in some way is an extension of you. So it is hard to detach that, but I mean, it's the very idea of like acting. You pull experiences, you know, and the emotions you felt to pull them in and project them into a new character. But it's still your experience. It's what you felt. It's what you know. When it comes to that, like I know there is a hard time separating those two. But when it comes to like building out your characters, it kind of comes down to I do believe you should play to the character. Like we all know what you might do because we know you. But this character, she played Opal in the way I think Opal would have natively played out. Like I felt that's what the character would do. 
in the same way when Iftail makes a move, I know what Iftail would do. And that's different than what Justin would do. So it, it's like that's the difference between it of letting them stand on their own as that character. Let them become real in that world and let them ground themselves in that world based on their decisions in that environment versus what you think is best for them. Absolutely. And I think, too, when you look at you're looking at eight sessions to play these characters. We're over 20 sessions now, and I think it probably took us 10, 12, 15 sessions to really get in there and really be that character. I think in those early sessions, it was much more, this is me playing as this character and I'm trying to find out who they are and what they're going to be. And it's more me than the character. Whereas now I think it's more the character than it is us. And I think it takes a little bit of time to get into that place. So that's exactly how I see it too when it comes to our campaign. No one knew their characters until they got to see the decisions their characters would make. Because we saw for 10 sessions, the repetitive nature of the themes that were arising based on decisions they had made. So like the prestidigitation that Iptil is always doing, doesn't like to be dirty. These all came out of those first 10 and now we expect it moving forward. It's who they are. And right. so you're right. In eight individual episodes, it's a lot harder to have enough moments happen to help define a character. So what's your favorite min-max build that you've played? And what's your favorite min-max build just kind of in your head, theoretically? There was a, it was a long time ago. It was actually 3.5, but I had a multi-class rogue with a, I believe it was a bard. And so because of like all of the bonuses you got between both of them, he was incredibly powerful. That enabled all his abilities to hit really hard and was almost nigh impossible to hit. And I could sing at people from the shadows. It was a weird mixture of a character, but it worked out incredibly well. And we ended up taking down a god near the end of the campaign. So to me, that was my favorite one to Play. But I kind of go back a little bit because a little bit of why he was fun to play was because my ability to storytell him and I like do his voice. So I guess I just got into the character a lot, but he was stronger than our fighter because I was a better min-maxer than our fighter was. I think my favorite one that I've played is definitely Lindir. It's probably the main min-max character that I've played, though I've played some others that kind of would fit into that a little bit. But with him, it started out as a Horizon Walker Ranger and then took some levels of Rogue and essentially could just jump around the battlefield between some of the powers that came along with being an Aladrin, some of the character, the things that came along with a Horizon Walker and then picking up certain magic items along the way. He almost could not be hit when he didn't want to be. He couldn't be seen. If he got into a place where he could be hit, he could just jump around the battlefield and go somewhere else quicker than anybody else could and just reposition himself. And it was just an excellent character to play that could barely miss when he shot, barely get hit. And when he did hit, he hit hard, just adding in. Yeah, he did. You know, the bonuses that I got from Horizon Walker, the sneak attack bonuses and the bonuses that came from the magical bows that I had, you know, I would hit harder at times than the sorcerer would hit with something or that the paladin would hit. And a ranger rogue probably shouldn't be able to do that, but it just worked out as everything, every time that I was picking a level, every time that I was you know, given a magic item. Every time that there was something there, I was looking and 
figuring out how do I make him more powerful as this bow wielding nightcrawler ass jumping around the battlefield dude. And when it came to mechanics and tactics was a blast to play. I still hold the triumph of you were probably the most powerful person in our entire group at the end of the day, based on one, your incredible amount of natural 20 rolls and ability to always roll high, but also your character's natural finesse for being able to kind of just do whatever you wanted at any given point, no matter who we were fighting. (laughs) The triumph I hold is that I still had the most damage output in one combat because I dropped all those kobolds on a giant. Absolutely. Which and that was nice. all through right. role-playing and talking, which is just awesome. And sometimes role-playing can defeat min-maxing in that way. Theoretical characters. Yep. There was, uh, I remember back in like 3.5, people started to combine the idea of like your sorcerers with a more armored offensive focus, like an armored sorcerer. And kind of, there was something in 4E, I don't remember all the details, but it kind of played to that a little bit better, though it kind of fell short. But there was a variant of it we always talked about way back when that was essentially the sorcerer who would be able through like a series of feats wear a lot of armor and kind of be our tanky caster. But the abilities that were offered to them too from there is like once you got past level 10, you could pretty much best Vecna in any one-to-one duel at that point. <laughs> And I know this because I did, but it was essentially like an armored sorcerer of like an arcane focus. At some point, you take that feed or whatnot. It was stupid how untouchable I was and how I could pretty much blow a castle down. It was crazy. And what about you? I think theoretical for me, it is probably like a hexaden, Mm -hmm. you know, that hex blade, warlock, paladin. Everything can come down to just your charisma and you can just be blasting things hard and you've got armor proficiency and you can have whatever weapons you want and you can sit there and hit with your blade and smite over and over and over again and still be able to step back and eldritch blast when you need to. I think just min-max build that's probably my favorite one theoretically, but I don't know that I would enjoy playing it, but I like the idea of it. And part of the reason is, is I like some of the storytelling aspects of it. I would love to be playing this good aligned paladin that picks up this cursed blade that gives him those hex blade powers and the fight between the hexed blade, especially if it's a sentient blade and the paladin. There's some there's some cool ideas there that are both min-maxed and, and story based. Which is really funny that you say that because that's very close to what one of my characters uh, or one of my players is playing a character called Vorman. He is actually playing almost essentially that in my Saturday game. He was a paladin who took up uh, essentially becoming a warlock with a hexblade through the Raven Queen. And so oh, cool. now he's going through a constant story narrative battle of sorts between the Raven Queen and then his uh his paladin god or angel, which is Serafina, who's been like watching over his family for a long time. And so as he neglects one, the other one starts to have a bit more feelings and like wondering if it's a like a bad move to support this individual who's choosing the Raven Queen over Serafina. And so like this last time he finally checked in with her and I played her off more of like the playing hard to get kind of upset, but not wanting to show it like, are we done here? Are we done here yet? Kind of like almost that passive aggressive, you know, putting up that wall until eventually he puppy eyed himself into her good graces again and kept promising like i'll do better i'll be better and that's kind of what she was pushing onto him of like yeah you have this new your new toy but don't forget where you've come from who you are and that you can do better and it was really cool to like play these dynamics between the two because the raven queen came out kind of like this person who was wronged for a long time and finally came back into 
into the fold through Vormund. And so she was like, I, I appreciate you being my chosen one, but I'm going to fuck some people up. Because she was angry. <laughs> she was pissed. And she nearly ripped his body in, into pieces trying to seek her revenge on Graz. And so there's a Serafina steps in and essentially holds his body, his vessel together while she concludes. And he's able to kind of walk away from it with like level four exhaustion falling to pieces. And so it was like, it kind of worked out for him. But that's yeah, funny you mentioned that, except for like, we're not min-maxing it as much as just doubling down on like the story focus and what this means to an individual to have two connections and the being allowed to even have them from both parties and the kind of not love triangle but lore triangle between all three because raven queen has history with seraphina um which i'll tell you more about later because i think it's actually itself a really cool beat on how to tell the lore of your world in a homebrew setting and i think that kind of fits into our next thing you know so we're talking about min max and we're talking about these story-based characters but what you've just said there really comes into our next subject, which is world building with your players. And I think as a DM and as a player that that's one of the most important things because I enjoy world building as much or more than anything else we do in playing D&D. Building out what this world looks like and what the relationships are and what is involved in it and what is there is one of my favorite things. And so I love trying to bring my players into that. And as I mentioned last week, I started that from the very beginning with the campaign that I'm doing right now. Our group started talking about an indie RPG called The Quiet Year. Um, you may have already heard about this because it's been out for a while, or maybe you listened to The Adventure Zone and they used it to build out their latest campaign world. And I tweaked it a little bit. Didn't have to make very many changes to it other than just encapsulating the area that we were building but I'm building out a magic school that is going to be the basis of this campaign that I'm doing with my wife and kids. And we played the quiet year to build that world out together. So that world was built by the five of us. And I only had a fifth of the input in putting it together. And there were times where I started putting something there and somebody else took it away from me. So it is very much has their input. And that was a fascinating way to begin a campaign was from the very beginning saying, you have a say in the world that we're going to be a part of. Yeah, no, I think that's kind of like the best way to go about it. I mean, there's a lot of ways to incorporate collaborative world building. Because I know like, sometimes if you start from like a module standpoint and an established setting, it's a lot harder to do that out the gate because it's kind of like, you don't necessarily say, here's the forgotten, you know, the Sword Coast or the Forgotten Realms. What do you guys think we should throw in there? Because then it comes down to like, well, some of it might dilute the actual ability to tell the narrative and go where you need it to go. But I do believe you can do it in a real time sense. But I feel like if there's ever a chance to do it the way you've done it, that is by far the best method. Because that's kind of what we all want at the end of the day is... When we all come to D&D, at least for the way I play D&D and have experienced it, we don't necessarily want to come to have a story told to us. We want to come to be a part of the story and help tell our part of it. And if, you know, having the ability to not only do that, but then to hook into the world too and tell the pieces of the world that our character knows, that other characters might know, and then have the DM allow you to say, like, yeah, no, that's, that's totally a thing. Back in the city they're from, that is the very thing that they're talking about exists. And allowing them to have the agency to, you know, tweak and modify and show that this world is not, 
like in pen. Any part of it can be changed and rearranged as needed to help tell a better story that incorporates our characters in a way that makes their presence felt. And so I guess I mentioned last time, like I did that more in this last session. It was minor here and there. And I, I a lot of a lot of times I wanted to do it more, but it is harder to do it in real time with a module if I'm focused on the module's specific part in the campaign. Now, if it's my stuff, oh, absolutely. If I make up a store and you're like, well, I'm going to go over to this, the broom closet. I'm like, yep, there's a broom closet. You find exactly that, you weirdo. Because why not? And so I do think being able to stop of me trying to describe something and sometimes just say like, yeah, FTL, as you look over to that side of the store, what do you see? And then get your response. And then everyone else kind of waits of like, is, is, is that real? Did, like, he just made that up. I know he's not the DM, but is that real? And then the DM being like, oh, that's totally exactly what you see. And then everyone being like, understanding that the world isn't so set in stone that they can't have some, you know, some creativity in it. Everyone's creativity should be layered into my world. And so that's, that's where I see like the power of collaborative world building. We all get a piece in building the world that our story is going to take place in. And as a result, it will be a better story. And I think the key to that is understanding that it is collaborative as a right. player in the world right now, taking the pieces that you give me and doing something interesting with it. Yeah. We shared a clip from very early on in the campaign in the last session where we have a callback to an earlier encounter with an NPC as we see this rainbow colored thread that is floating outside of the destruction of Elturel and everybody has a reaction to it. And all of the characters took part of that that they had been given from her before. So we, she'd given us all this thread. We see the scarf that that thread coming from disintegrate into it. And at that point, everybody begins to take that thread into a part of their character. Ilftl uses his as a page marker in his spell book. And another character, Veer, the satyr, has it tied to his horn. And each of those characters had kind of spoken of that. And then we reminded each other in our ongoing Discord chat when we had shared that clip with each other again this week of what each character was doing that. So that's taking something that that seems small and even maybe throwaway and building it into our character and therefore the world showing that that NPC was important to all of the characters and that it is a part of the story of that city being taken down into the hells. And I've seen that over and over again with all of the players that something that you've handed us that we found something interesting to do with it, even if it wasn't a, you know, super special magical item and it wasn't something that had a huge story beat in the moment. We've brought it in and made it important because we've said that it is. Well, right. And I think that's a, like the other aspect of it too. And like going back to the rainbow thread, like, you know, that was kind of part of how we started the whole campaign and be like trying to layer in these emotional attachments. Oh, well, I guess kind of like a bad guy so I could rip them away, but to make them mean something for the cause. And I was more than happy when everyone's like after the fall of the city, I mentioned the scarf, which was just meant to be a heart wrencher that all of you were like, where is that scarf? I want a piece of that scarf. And then 
saying like, I'm going to do this and tie it into my main. I'm going to tie it on my whore. I'm going to put it in my book. It was, I didn't have to tell that part of the story. It was the part you all told that made that story much cooler, much more impactful. And even brought it like, essentially plot twisted it back at me and made me feel emotional about it because you all did that. Right. That was the power of that. Um, And I hope one day when the campaign finishes, assuming everyone makes it out, but maybe they don't. It's just like a ghost caricature, caricature that we then see that rainbow thread in some like artwork we made where the group all has it on all their characters. Oh yeah. That's awesome. Like that. I hadn't even thought about it that way, but that is so cool. I would would probably cry because that's going to be so (laughs) right. And I just love how those small things speak into the world that we built. And you even think about how we, a player plays off of the world that they're in. Ilfiel's from Elturel. That is a beautiful, good city. It's, it, you know, you look at the difference between it and Baldur's Gate and it's Metropolis and Gotham. And so he's coming from this great and wonderful place. And all of a sudden he's thrown into Baldur's Gate, which in my thought, he's passed through before he's been there, but he's never spent any time there because it's been a waste of his time. And then as it's gone through, he starts off disgusted by the city And then he's intrigued by certain aspects as he begins to meet people in it. And then as he is, the more time that he spends there, now he's invested in not only working out what has happened to Elturel and how to save it, but keeping that same disaster from happening to Baldur's Gate because there's a reason to care about it. Right. And that comes from the world building back and forth of the player and the DM. And so whichever role you happen to be in, you've got to take that responsibility and be able to play off of it. And, and you mentioned this earlier, but you're really good, too, of you know, there is a bookstore that you built there called Tales of Time there in Baldur's Gate. And one of the first things that Ilfiel asks when he goes in there, he's got this stack of books he wants to to look at is, do you have any kind of study room in here, any quiet place that I can go and look at it? And absolutely, there's a few of them. They're right down this hall. You go pick which one you want to go into. And that's that collaborative role building. Here's something that the character is looking for and you're yes. And here's where it is. And here's what's important about this. And this one's a little nicer than that one. And you begin to see not only the world being built out there, but the book owner there, the bookstore owner there and LTL is a bookstore owner and both of them wanting to, you know, expand their horizons and gain more knowledge there's a bond there that's built between the two of those characters as as they interact and i think that's part of the world building as well yeah i think like that's that was like the power of that too is that yeah i have that bookstore but you want this and because i'm allowing you to build that part of the store that i hadn't really thought about yet but yeah it can totally have that that now when we think back to tales of the time it'll have of course the tales of time will exist but then we'll also know that it has those rooms. I didn't necessarily build these rooms out. You did. But that's as canon as canon needs to be. Because together we built that place. And so now I also now know it has those rooms. You know it has rooms. Everyone does. As right. As well as some of the other functionalities and features and things and details about the store that otherwise weren't figured out until you all came in and then told me what it had. Showed me what it could do and asked your questions that then helped build those parts out. 
like, yeah, there's always a limit. Like, you don't say like, oh, yeah, we have a bomb shelter room here in the library. Because, like, you know, at some point it's not good storytelling. But if it's within reason and it makes a lot of sense and there's no reason necessary to say no, then don't let it happen. Because from there you can do the yes and you can set those limits in an organic way versus just saying like, yeah, no, we don't have anything you want ever. Well, that's not really conducive to improv nor helping the, the flow of the story continue. So and I only say that because there are some limitations we've encountered, mainly one is the introduction of a Fae Australia. So Veer is the character who is from Fae Australia. No one in my campaign knows of a Fae Australia because there is no Fae Australia. However, there have been characters who have acknowledged that the Fae Wild is so massive, maybe it does have something of the like. There would be no way of knowing, so it's better to just say, yeah, sure you are. I can't refute it because I don't really have a map of Fae Wild because no one does. Um, and then there's Amrick, who's very adamant and kind of well-read saying like why are you lying it's like you can't just lie to me i'm a liar too and then he kind of admits like okay yeah i'm lying but then goes back into it for the next npc i will allow him to tell as many lies as he wants but i'm not allowing there to ever be a fail australia to go to and if, if anyone tried that'd be a very fun and interesting session i don't say no in a way that completely shuts him down i just don't let my npcs have the knowledge of it kind of allowing him to continue to tell his tale, but not in a way that forces him to feel like he's not part of the experience in a role-playing, world-building sense. So what do you think is the time when you do just say no? Well, I imagine in that regards, it's when it becomes ridiculous and no longer being a part of the experience. Let's say you're all, you know, in a hallway that you had just come down a ladder in front of a cultist layer. And now they're starting to tell me about solutions to a problem that aren't there. I'm OK with creative solutions. And in fact, I often encourage them. But if you say, like, you told me there's a bookcase in front of this door whatnot, and there's no handle. Well, I'm going to go over here and pull the lever. Well, I, there's no lever there. Oh, no, there's a, I, I, there's a lever definitely right here. Uh, uh, maybe it's a block I just pushed in, the door opened. If there's a reason the door is in the way it is and it's not meant to have something like that, that becomes a limit of, well, I could say yes, but I don't think that's adding anything to the story here. In fact, it's just avoiding the story. It's avoiding the natural flow of it so that your character can do whatever they want to, regardless of the party, regardless of the environment, regardless of your knowledge. There's a way that it ends up shutting the story down and then there's a way that it is playing into it. So if it's just like, oh, I'm stuck in a cell. Or the DMs put me in a cell. Um, I look on the ground. Is there any rocks here? Some rocks I can get my hands on so I can pelt the guards. Oh, hell yeah, absolutely. There's a chair. Sure, some chains on the wall you might be able to tug out and use as a weapon. Why not? Now, if you say, oh, someone's already dug a hole out of my cell and I uncover it and then I escape. What has that actually done for any of us? It's like, well, maybe, sure, you find a hole that was started. It's not finished. Do you want to spend the next rest of our session trying to dig it with your lack of tools? And so at some point, it's a matter of that. I guess that would be a moment where I'd be like, no, this, the door isn't just open to yourself because they forgot to lock it. Absolutely. And I think that you hit it very early on, and I'm kind of the same way, is if this is going to distract from the story we are trying to tell together, or if it is going to completely devolve the scene that is set, then I'm going to say no. And I'll find a nice way to do it. You know, kind of like you said, is, you know, I'm going to do this. Well, 
I don't know how you're going to do that because that's not there. This is the way I always like to do it sarcastically. And I think it was interesting too, you know, Sunday night, everybody leveled up and you actually said no to me on a thought that I had, you know, we get back to the suboptimal character choices. And one of the things that I was considering doing was uh, multi-class and it was suboptimal character wise, but it did fit somewhat into the story. But I liked what you did when you said, you know, when I was saying, I'm thinking about doing this, I said, well, I wouldn't let you do that right now because I've got a better idea that I'm working on down the road. That's going to fit into that same kind of vibe. So you said no, but you didn't totally shut me down. You just said, I see where you're going here. But I've got another idea here. Trust me. And I think that's a lot of times the best way to say no is that's really interesting. That's a good thought. But there's this other thing that I'm trying to do. And if you'll trust me, I'm going to we're going to go in that direction. Yeah. And I think that's kind of like the probably power phrasing behind it is like you have to have that trust that whatever the decision is you're given, run with it. Because right. it wasn't made in vain. It wasn't made to despite you. It was probably made, you know, in your best interest. So like with this moment, yeah, what you wanted to do, it would have ended up kind of closing a door for you of things I had sort of planned. And I don't want to lay anything in stone, but I do think your character would have a better way of being a part of the world and the conflict and the story wise if you let the current narrative continue to play out and get there naturally right? versus your character deciding it. Exactly. So that's kind of like what it was, was like, well, just trust me, just a little bit of time. I, I I can almost guarantee you're going to love it. And then right. I even gave you a hint of something too after that. Um, exactly. You know, that spell. And it was like, here is another way that I'm making up for it that you were already learning this and your character is going to come into this knowledge. And it's not necessarily saying, oh, you earn this because I told you no, because that would be unfair. Right. You get this because you've already earned it. You've already been working towards it and earning this. Yeah, abs- that was, and that was a cool moment too, is looking and seeing that again, that collaborative world building, you know, LTL and Morty have been spending time studying certain things that they want their characters to get better at, and they're getting better at it. The LTL is learning spells. Eventually, Morty's going to learn this herbology that she's been wanting to study. And, you know, I've got another book that I'm going to start reading when I'm finished with this one. I've got things that I'm learning from Voltaire, the owner of the bookstore that he's been sharing me about some spells that he knows how to do that he was like, I can't show you in a book, but I can start to teach you how to do it. It's going to take a little while, but you can learn this. And so all of this, I've been, you know, LTL has been learning along the way because he is just trying to gain this knowledge because he feels like that's his best way to save his home and to help his team is to know the most he can about anything that they might come in contact with and have the most opportunity to possibly be able to deal with. It. Yeah, it's, it's like, I think that's like a matter of building out the world in a way that it offers the sustenance your character is looking for in order to understand their current situation and perhaps the world around them. And so you were, you know, in the Tales of Time with Fatul Amari asking about like what books do you have and all this. And I, of course, give you a very, very long worded name to kind of play up the scholar like nature, the reading, you know, um, level that your character would be at and their kind of curiosities. Even if you're not a powerful wizard, you are a bookstore owner and someone who's well read. So even if you don't understand everything, you've probably 
pretty well versed at reading some of the more complicated pieces right. versus the Mile Finch's, you know, books that were tailored towards people like Veer uh, once he learns how to read. And so and we're going to have to teach him how to read just so we can bring some of those Miles Finch meth books out of our heads and into the real world. Absolutely. Because I have a thousand ideas on that. <laughs> what I think if there is, you know, the best tip that I can give on this collaborative world building really comes from something that I've seen you do, which is giving the character an opportunity to really show who they are and an aspect of what they do and an aspect of the world around them, the things that they have learned. And two in, two points in particular, one that a character kind of built on his own and then one that you just handed to a character and we saw what they did with it. And the first is very early on, right after what we shared with everyone last week from the fall of Elturel was you gave Morty this opportunity to do this ritual of loss and death over the city. And she just made up this beautiful prayer at the moment and gave it to us. And we began to see what the church of Kelmbor is like through that. So she gave us a very large piece of lore and world building in that moment. And it was so beautiful. And then later on in the campaign, we see Veer get up and give this grand speech to the people of the city where he speaks to these hardships and these difficulties and to a kind of rebellious class within the city that hadn't really been brought up yet. I think all of us could assume that that class was there and there was an unrest, but he really brought it out to the forefront by giving this speech and having the people rally around him. And so between his words and a really good role there, he creates this sense of unrest in the lower city that really didn't quite exist until that point. Yeah, and with that, you know, it cascades into running out the barbarians who are causing chaos for the sake of chaos for the Van Thampers, as well as it brings out a character, Rhea Mantleborn, who was currently on the lam, to say like, oh, yeah, no, I back him. That's exactly the sentiment that, that people need to hear. Um, and then, yeah, earlier on with Morty, it was a matter of early on, before you truly even knew the full extent of who she was, she showed you who she was through the respecting of the dead, what she values, you know, who she prayers to. And then Kelimvor's play in all of this that, you know, this Lord of the Dead of such is here to respect those who died prematurely, who were ripped from literally their homes along with their home and pulled into Avernus. And it was a very respectful moment that was very fueled, especially in a time where a whole city just fell. And then later on, she's recognized by the Knights of Kelmvor of the Eternal Order as one of their members. For yeah. She's done enough things now and, and proven her, her devotion and really helped with this pushback against that, which is not, you know, not right. And then you all get to go to the ceremony where she was handed that squirrel and having this beautiful moment. Um, and equally, like that that's what it's all about. Is like It's not always about like the story itself. If the story can be better when a person gets a spotlight or you build out the environment and build out the right situation where your players can tell you who they are and get to yeah. a chance to show everybody in the party why they're here and what they mean. Because I didn't tell Morty to do the prayer. She just asked. 
Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I built this so anyone can have an emotional reaction to it. And if that's how your character is going to react, please do it. Well, and, and then a session do. later, you did the same thing with me. I pulled something completely out of nowhere just because there's some mention with some of the elven moon goddesses that Iltiel is attached to and moon goddesses in general, where, you know, there's some music attached to it. And I said, well, how would you worship this goddess? How would it go in? And so, you know, I have him dancing naked in the forest and you just jumped into that scene and built it out really cool. And then we've seen that connection with Elestri and Salune just continue to build out throughout our whole time coming through the campaign. And I think that was great. And that just came out of a how is somebody who is connecting himself to these particular goddesses going to react in this emotional, painful time as he is a refugee from his home? The loss of everything you've known and love. Um, yeah. So we've seen that in some really cool ways with all of our different characters, how you've allowed just, you know, at times it's been a throwaway joke. Like when I joked about there being a cart of hay below this large tower that Axios was jumping into because it were, him climbing up the tower reminded me of Assassin's Creed. And you were like, yeah, there's a cart of hay there. And then you twisted it and changed it to a cart of dead bodies with some hay covering them. And so many wonderful ways that you've taken something, whether it has been a very sincere thing that we were doing or a joke moment. And that's where we want to be as we're world building with one another is be able to play off of each other. And it goes back to our very first session of Sylvan Horn where we were, and you've said it today, that yes and. Yes, and it's full of dead bodies as well. Yes, and you get advantage because you have spent time doing this. Yes, just honoring what it is that the player is trying to do with their character, but then giving them something on top of that. Instead, it's not just the moment, there's more story that goes with what you just build, which is what it turns it into just collaborative world building. And it's not just, yeah, you're doing that. But as soon as you're done doing that, we're going to get on to the real thing. You have to take what it is that they're doing and wrap it into the story that's being told. In its own way, it's a lot of like trying to fight against the idea of meandering that is wasted time. Because I don't think meandering is necessarily bad. I think meandering can actually be a very powerful tool for all the players when it actually means something, it actually adds value and they don't feel bad for doing it. So when it was, you know, things like that, where he was going to go off into a spy mission and then falls and you kind of throw out there like, you know, Assassin's Creed is going to jump into a thing. Of course, I love that idea. Right. But I already had my own ideas. And instead of just, you know, canning it or just saying no to you, I just introduced my ideas into yours and was like, yeah. There's totally a cart there as it rolls up with a donkey pulling it and a guy walks into the church. And then it was a matter of if the cart was checked previously, you would have experienced that. But it kind of plays out in this way of it was a yes and, but it was a yes and that incorporated everyone's wants. And right. from there, we told a better story together because that cart could have not been there and he could have fallen in a much more dangerous situation. But because of the joking of the group and everyone's immersion, I kept it all in the story. Therefore, we all stayed in story immersion and followed along until that wonderful plot twist moment where these pieces of Leonin just spill out into the street and everyone's horrified. I feel maniacal and like I pulled off this evil plot twist because I did. But I still know I honored everybody ability to be part of the story so it feels like we were all the reason this happened we are all experiencing it together yeah and that's you know 
if I can say anything to anybody who is a DM or is thinking about DMing, it is make sure that you're doing this. I think that that brings the players in in a way that they're going to want to come back, whether it's every week or every month or whenever it is that you're playing. If they have a say in what is happening in the world, they are going to want to continue to be a part of it. Whereas if it is just them kind of walking through the choose your own adventure that you wrote, it's not quite the same. Yeah, don't detail everything out. Make outlines and then be ready to adapt those outlines and like, you know, regraph them onto whatever your player's current focus is and what they're doing and what their and you know, many narratives are. Bring everything into the fold and make it part of the story. So don't just don't shut things down. Kind of roll with it the best you can and have limits. But aside from that, be adaptable. I guess like it all kind of summarizes down to that. Be adaptable and remember this is everyone's world, not just yours. I will want to see what everyone brings to the story I initially initially drafted up because no draft is going to survive publication. By the time we actually finish the story, it will not be the one I wrote. It'll be the one we told. Well, hello, everyone. It seems like Lindir and Pursuit have already left for the day, so we're not going to get to know what they are up to, but I am sure that next week we're going to find out where it is they've gone, what they've been doing, and I can tell you, anytime they come back from a hunt, it is always interesting. So, let's listen in to a little more about what is happening in Baldur's Gate. Killin'. You know, isn't the way to go? No, the guy beside you, like, yeah, no, that's right. Like, you gotta get rid of that mentality. You can't just kill everybody. Solve problem. Hey, you shut up now. I don't want to talk about that. Right. I agree with that guy. You know what? Let me talk to this foreman. I'll get you all free rent and board. We'll just all sit out here and have a good time. Hey, man, that'd be great. I mean, I just dropped the murder thing and don't talk about that part of it, but I'll take rent free. Excellent. Um, um, just tell them that uh, Brasdor sent you. Hey, what's your ride in? Wait, the foreman, he's got, like, guards and stuff? Um, yeah, he's um, hes not like us, if you know what I'm saying. He's, like, different. Not us, but, like, different from us. He's, hes I guess, more dangerous, is what you might want to say. Uh, he's he like a rat? A, I don't want to be racist. I don't know what's actually politically correct nowadays, but he is not us. I don't know what this means, but I feel like this really personifies what I mean. He's <laughs> not onion. us. That's an onion shape. He's kind of like, it's like a big onion. I mean, mm. I wouldn't, I, I'd, probably not very late, probably not very like, complex, really. Um, okay. So he's an he's orc. Like, he's like a monster, but he's like a monster onions, that can hold a combo. Uh, well, yeah, it's kind of like, I guess like that. I really don't know what that is, but I mean, probably ogre. like that. Yeah. Ogre. Uh, yeah. Orc. He's, he's like a monster, but don't call him monster because you have to be inclusive. Um, he's a, a thing that's not us. This is a really inclusive homeless area that I'm in part of right now. I mean, you have to get with the times, man. You know what I'm saying? Racism is bad and all that shit. I just, I don't know how to do it right. So I just don't. I just, I just say other things, you know? You know, like you replace it. I don't know it. how to do racism right. I, you know I don't what? I like racist, but I don't want to fuck it up either. So I just say <laughs> random shit and hope I can get my meaning, like, you know, onions or whatever, like whatever this is. That's probably yeah, closer than what I would have said, you know, if you asked me 10 years ago. Uh, I'm a changed man. That's what I'm saying. I'm trying to get better for my daughter. I'm, I'm working on it. Okay. Well, uh, I'll go, I'll go speak to this foreman. Get this man's name. He's my new favorite character.
Mac and again, it has been a wonderful day here at Sylvan Horn. I am so surprised about what these fools are getting up to in Baldur's Gate. I'm going to have to check it out at some point. But until then, Avita Zan.